Welcome to Grassroots Nation, a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies, a show in which we dive deep into the life, work, and guiding philosophies of some of our country's greatest leaders of social change. Professor Madhav Gadgil is one of India's most prolific and well-known ecologists. He was born in 1942 into an illustrious family. His father, Dhananjay Gadgil, was an economist who put together the Gadgil formula. A man who was also an Indian statesman, a professor and vice chairman of the Planning Commission of India and a nominated member to the Rajya Sabha. From an early age, Madhav Gadgil was interested in nature, a curiosity that was nurtured by his family and his neighbor, the renowned sociologist Iravati Karve, and his early communications with ornithologist Salim Ali and the writings of JBS Haldane. Madhav Gadgil studied for a PhD in mathematics at Harvard and graduated in 1969 and then returned to India much unlike the majority of his peers to build a career here. His career and contribution to Indian ecology is vast, establishing key research centers as is his work on environmental policy. He has sat on numerous committees been a member of the Prime Minister's Scientific Advisory Council and more recently was the chairperson of the Western Ghats Ecology Expert Panel. Professor Gadgil was awarded the Padma Shri in 1981 and the Padma Bhushan in 2006. In 2023, he published his autobiography, A Walk Up the Hill, in multiple Indian languages. Professor Gadgil is married to the meteorologist Professor Solochna Gadgil. Today, Professor Madhav Gadgil is in conversation with Professor Gurudas Nulkar, the director of the Center for Sustainable Development at the Gokhale Institute of Politics and Economics in Pune. Professor Nulkar is a well-known ecologist and academic. This interview was recorded at Professor Gadgil's residence in Pune. Good evening Professor Gadgil. It's my privilege to have this conversation with you to get to know your journey, the challenges you overcame and the peaks that you climbed in on this eventful journey. You've spent much of your career at the Center for Ecological Studies at the Indian Institute of Science Bengaluru. You've taught at Stanford, Harvard and some of the topmost universities of the world. Your work has taken you from the mountains in Arizona to the Caribbean coral reefs, from Africa to the trip you made to Kodagu as a schoolboy. But you've often said that your first love lies in the western ghats the mountain range parallel to the western coastline of india you've enjoyed working in these mountains documenting life forms staying with the local communities and enjoying their food and all of this after spending years at harvard university rubbing shoulders with eminent scientists and accessing some of the world's best laboratories which brings me to my first question what got you started in your journey of change was there a specific instance or an incident in your childhood or any influences that hooked you on to the life of scientific exploration well uh i guess uh, my father was an ecologist but uh, he was very interested in natural history and all disciplines of knowledge really and uh, he was an enthusiastic bird watcher and a very good friend of salim ali is famous ornithologist and uh, uh, from a young age i was identifying birds looking at pictures in salim ali's book of indian birds 
well before actually I could read. In those days, uh, we were not forced to go to schools and start reading, uh, learning to read at all very early. So at, by the before the age of five uh, years, I knew no reading or writing. But uh, at that time, I was already recognizing birds. It was fun. And uh, then when I was 14 or so, I had a question about this bird green beater and uh, how it uh, loses uh, its pin feather in, from the tail in certain seasons. And uh, there were no answers in any of the books. And my father said, why don't you write to Sully Valley and ask him. So I wrote to him and very promptly, he had a very elegant handwriting. He replied within three days that uh, at the time of the molt, the feather is shed, the spin feather, and only later it will sprout. So you wait for another month or month and a half, it will re-sprout. So I was really amazed that, you know, he took the trouble and immediately explained that indeed the pin feather uh, re-sprouted in a month or so. Then there were these Baya weaver birds. So Salim Ali was very interested in the breeding biology of Baya weaver birds. He was the man who elucidated this complex behavior. And near Parvati uh, hills in Pude Station, where there is this canal and bubble trees along the bank, he used to come to observe the Baya weaver bird colonies. So next time, I was 14, as I said, he came to Pune. Uh, I went, I made an appointment, I went and talked to him and his enthusiasm, his wit and uh, knowledge of birds and all, I really was so charmed that I decided that I will become like him a field biologist. And I told my father, uh, that's what I want to do. And my father was very happy, I mean, generally, the parents were putting pressure, you know, you go to engineering college and this and that. But I could have easily done so. I had no problems in terms of doing well in exams. But my father said, if that's what you enjoy, you do that. So that's how I turned to field ecology. And uh, then the, since we are so close to the Western Guards, in fact, the spurs of the Western Guards, you will see all over here, the, all these hill ranges. Uh, and uh, uh, my father was very fond of trekking and uh, both on the Western Ghat uh, proper, but on these hills. So I was, I became very fond of these. There were also very interesting descriptions in the literature, which uh, uh, stimulated my thinking. There is this history of uh, Marathas written by Grand Duff. He's an East, he was an India, East India Company officer. And he writes of how the whole Western Ghats were completely recovered. And by this time, you saw, you know, a lot of it had been uh, destroyed. I was wondering, though, how did it become so treeless? If we, uh, in 1829 or so, he was describing it, it was so uh, verdant. Uh, within uh, 150 years, how had it become, or 130 years at that time, how had it become largely treeless in many parts? And there is a very interesting book, Jyotiba Phule, you know, he's a great social reformer, and uh, I was attracted to his writings, and he has described how 
to him and I think that was historical fact very clearly. It was the drain of these forests by the British using the tool of forest department that had destroyed all this tree cover. So, I began to think about you know, these kind of issues also. Then simultaneously, uh, my father was very much uh, interested in cooperative movement and in 1949, when I was just seven years old, the first uh, cooperative sugar factory anywhere in the country came up here at Pravaranagar. And uh, before that, when I was five, six years old, I used to go with him, uh, visit there. And we would sit uh, actually on the floor with the farmers and have lunch with them and chat with them. So not only did I become very fascinated by the uh, birds and the beasts and the forests, but also by the people and their culture, which is, I believe, an unusual combination. Almost all the nature lovers, I'm afraid, hate people. <laughs> I don't. I mean, I am very fond of our people and our culture. And that is uh, how I think, you know, sort of my whole career was shaped. This was probably some of the first influences in your life to move towards scientific exploration. Um, oh, I must mention very briefly, no, J.B.S. Haldane was a major figure. J.B.S. Haldane, you might know, was one of the greatest scientists of last century, especially in terms of evolutionary biology. And uh, J.B.S. Haldane, in 1956, in fact, the same year, that I was talking about my meeting Salim Ali, he left England, uh, gave up British citizenship and came to India, declaring that uh, British and French and Israeli invasion of Suez was an act of imperialism which he could no longer stomach. Haldane migrated and took up Indian citizenship. So he came to Indian Statistical Institute in Kolkata and my father was on the governing board and he was involved in inviting Haldane to come to Calcutta. So I heard a lot about Haldane and this whole issue of, you know, imperial influences and how they had drained India's wealth and so on. Uh, and I also became very interested in the writings of uh, J.B.S. Haldane. And uh, he was not, one may say there are basically two kinds of biology in a way. One is descriptive biology, other is analytical, looking for cause, effect and so on, which is the, to my mind, the, the genuine uh, uh, heart of science. So, Salibadi was wonderful, but he was in a way which people, uh, at Harvard, the students used to kind of uh, dismiss people like Salim Ali saying they are stamp collectors, they are not scientists. Uh, and Haldane was a, not a stamp collector, he was a scientist in the true sense. I mean, he had enormous understanding of natural uh, history, but he com combined it with understanding the processes involved and uh, uh, his books. My father had an incredible collection of books. All He, he believed in uh, writing for the people. So there were a lot of popular books he has written. 
and they were in our collection so i read them and so i became interested in his brand of science so that is what took me to harvard you know you also fondly refer to your interactions with the great anthropologist and socialist eravati karve and mention how you got to handle anthropological artifacts and conduct research without external funding do you tell us a little bit about that part of your life ha so she was our neighbor and uh, her daughter gauri was the same age as me gauri despande later became a well known writer anyway so gauri and i were just one month apart and uh, since uh, iravati karve's family was next door i was uh, spending a lot of time in her house also and uh, she went on paleontological explorations with her paleo biological colleagues of deccan college and then she would bring back all sorts of things you know quartz needles and uh, bone needles uh, which the uh, stone age men you uh, people used and so on and she would show them to us it was fun now when i was 9 she was going to spend a month in kodagu which is uh, you know even today beautiful part of the country tree clad and uh, uh, with very large wild elephant population and she uh, asked uh, my mother and father whether i could join them for this month and uh, since uh, you know actually it meant missing uh, school for one full month so my headmaster said you can't go so my father said you don't worry he will learn quite a lot while he is there with her and uh, we will uh, take care of his studies so i went and there she was you know doing her she one of her interest was uh, anthropometry body measurements head measurements and so on so she was actually collecting that data and talking to the people of course she didn't know kannada but i had an uncle who stayed in belgaum so he was a uh, very good both in marathi and kannada so she had taken him as the inter- uh, interpreter and so with uh, him also i i learned to kannada also and a little bit but uh, it was uh, you know seeing research in action now she had always very little funds she wrote a classic uh, piece of work on kinship terminology in uh, maharashtrian communities all the data she collected simply by going on long bus rides on public buses and talking to people and uh, hardly any question apart from bike those bus tickets so i i said well you can do field work and you can do good scientific work intellectual work you don't need money necessarily so here i must inform our audience that professor gargil's love for western ghats is so intense that after he retired he bought a house which is nestled around the spurs of the western ghats so while we do not have the green cover which grant duff described in his book but we are still around the ghats in your house yes yes of course <laughs> that was one of the reasons why i really wanted to go uh, come here after coming back from bangalore your father was a renowned economist in india um, professor dhananjay rao gadgir and you got to learn a lot of economic thoughts from him 
one of the concepts which you have described earlier was the concept of externalized costs of economic development in a country. As an ecological scientist, did this economic thought have any influence on you? Yes, yes. I mean, I was very interested in you know, a whole range of disciplines, as I said. And uh, the Cambridge economist who was uh, the originator of the idea of externalities and so on was Pigu. And Pigu was my father's uh, thesis guide. Arthur Cecil Pigu. Arthur Cecil Pigu. He was my father's uh, guide of, uh, for his MPhil thesis at Cambridge. And uh, we had uh, writings of Pigu and so on at home also. We would discuss these. I, I had a very interesting experience uh, when I was 14 again. There were this series of uh, notable instances. Koina hydroelectric dam was under mm -hmm. construction. In Maharashtra. In Maharashtra. And my father, uh, in the Western Ghats, in fact, my father was member of some commission, irrigation commission, I think, of Maharashtra government. And they had a meeting there. So he used to enjoy taking me with him. And I, he took me along for this meeting. And uh, as we drove, we saw, amongst other things, that uh, maybe large areas of forest were unnecessarily destroyed. And my father was very sensitive to that. In any case, then he was also sensitive to the fact which he learned while the whole uh, discussion and understanding of the project was uh, being communicated through these meetings that they were given no proper rehabilitation, no compensation and great injustice was done to them. So, at the end of the day, he was very uh, distraught. Generally, he was a happy man. And he told, talked to me about this, that, you know, we of course need to produce electricity for our industrial progress, but uh, to incur these undue costs of destruction of nature and uh, impoverishment of people is all wrong. And in fact, um, if you told me a bit about what Pigu's ideas were and that how social inequality actually depresses the total welfare of the society and so on. So, yes, so even at that age, I was influenced by these ideas. And there is quantitative proof towards that. Yes, 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 plenty. Professor Gartgill, you have recently published your autobiography. And I believe this would be the first time that an autobiography is being released simultaneously in nine languages. Just a while ago, you mentioned about the incident with your father and the sugar cooperative factory. And you have written in that book that uh, your father was on the board of the sugar factory in Maharashtra and he wanted you to translate the annual report into Marathi so that the farmers would be able to read and understand that. Would you say that this incident has some influence on your translating the autobiography into nine languages? That I cannot say. But uh, I, I actually at that time, lot of people from the upper classes, so to say, were educated in Marathi. Uh, unlike today, when most of them go to English schools or even the Marathi schools have become largely English language schools. So I learned uh, Marathi right through and I was very fond of Marathi literature and especially Marathi poetry and yes, that time 
I it was the first time I wrote something in Marathi seriously. But then I when I was a little later, a year later or so, there was this popular science magazine, Shushtinyam. Uh, it still runs though. That time it was yeah. I think in three days. I wrote some articles on birds and so on for Shushtinyam. At the due to the encouragement of actually Ravati Karve, who was on the editorial board. So I had from that time started. I was interested, and I wrote popular articles on science uh, uh, from the age of fifteen or so at regularly, and I continued to. It is part of my interest in writing, but because of my interest in uh, all parts of the country, and uh, actually some programs I undertook of decentralized monitoring involving. A number of partners and networks of people that has uh, provided me good friends from essentially every part of the country. And uh, when I started writing the autobiography, they said they want to translate this uh, quite spontaneously. So that's how it has gone. But I remember you also insisted that the government publish the Western Ghats Ecology Expert Panel report into local languages, which can be read in Maharashtra, Karnataka, and Kerala. Unfortunately, the government did not heed to your request. Ah, that was, I mean, that was part of a major recommendation of our panel. Absolutely, which was not considered by the government. I have seen your library and your books, and you have often said in your speeches that you were a voracious reader in as a youth. I have heard you talk about Salim Ali's books, but also Dharmanand Kosambi, Jyotiba Phule. Atre's Gao Gada, Rachel Carson, and JBS Hardin and others. How is the love for reading carried? Through in your career, has it helped you in any way, or has it helped you build upon your scientific exploration? I guess, uh, but there are many inspiring, actually, passages in the poetry. I'll, I'll take you know, one specific example. You know, there is this uh, poem by Kusmagraj about the uh, soldiers, uh, I mean the senior generals in Shivaji's army actually, running away in a war, the Mughals, and he condemns them. And they say that, well, it was something we did, which is not what a Maratha should do. You should never run away from any fight. When I was a boy, I read that poem, and I read it again and again. Vegata Daudale Veera Marathe Sata. So, if there is a controversy, I enjoy controversy, and if there is pressure to ignore and yield, I say, no, no, this is not the way. So, the Western Ghat Ecology Expert Panel report was attacked by, viciously actually, by uh, misquoting disinformation uh, of various sorts being promulgated. There were friends who said, are why you bother? I said, no, no, that is... I have written it for the people of India and not for any governments who are uh, maybe completely ruled by Western interests. So I will go fight. So I have continued and many, many other ways sometimes came up such controversy that I never, if I felt that I was right, I never yielded. <laughs> So from Ferguson College and Institute of Science to Harvard, it has been a very long journey, I'm sure. You got to spend time with great scientists like Edward Wilson, Giles Mead, 
but you also spend time with other scientists like Paul Ehrlich and Jared Diamond. How would you describe your education beyond your PhD in Harvard? See, there were very clear, interesting lessons. Uh, I was actually, I would say, disgusted by the fact that my teachers in Institute of Science in Mumbai were lazy. They would do nothing, no stitch of work on their own. All they would do is to get their students to, PhD students to write theses and uh, put their name on the publication as co-author without having been given any inputs to the students. Harvard was utterly different, you know. There was also a culture which is very different. I mentioned in the book that on the first day, I uh, took a course in algal uh, chemistry, uh, bio, uh, biochemistry and physiology. And after the lab was over, we were leaving. And I saw the assistant professor help us. He was himself washing the glassware which the students had uh, left. Now, you cannot imagine in uh, India, in any lab, no faculty member is ever going to think of washing the glassware. And so there was a whole different culture. And then the, I was also slowly began to appreciate how the European science had employed fundamental science uh, to drive technological progress. And of course, those technologies were used to dominate the world in trade, war and so on. Harvard had been the place where in the computing center, the calculations for the atom bomb were done and all sorts of things. And I was attracted to computers and so I learned a lot about history of computers. And in general, I saw the behavior of the faculty, I mean, easily how they would mix to with the students and very little hierarchy in their relationships. So all of that, you know, was a tremendous, in a sense, cultural experience. Then, of course, how actually science should work and the hypothetical deductive method and so on, and uh, how science must have only one basis, which is objective facts. All that kind of thing, uh, I had some understanding of that, but it got consolidated during the Harvard years. Although he had many offers of professorships at some of the best universities in America, Professor Gadgil and his wife, Professor Sulochna Gadgil, returned to pursue their careers in India in 1971. Madhav Gadgil worked at the Agarkar Research Institute in Pune for two years. His explorations of the hills around Pune during this period led to vital research on sacred groves, with Gadgil seeing them as excellent examples of local indigenous conservation. He joined the Indian Institute of Science in Bengaluru in 1973. He would stay at the IISC for 30 years, and his legacy there is vast. He established both the Centre of Theoretical Sciences and the Centre for Ecological Studies. Both you and your wife, Professor Sulochana Gadgil, were very fortunate to be getting into uh, such a renowned university and having to do PhD with some of the most eminent scientists. After your PhD, both of you were offered prized positions in teaching in Harvard and in MIT, and yet you both chose to move back. Was this somewhat contrary to the flow at that time? And 
what could be the triggers for such a decision for both of you together? It was contrary entirely because of all the Indian students at Harvard that were with me, there was only one other, Suresh Tendulkar, distinguished economist, oh, you know, okay. and uh, he is the uh, brother of Vijay Tendulkar, yes. a great Marathi writer. He came back and I and Sulachana came back. But there were maybe 70 others uh, Indian students at Harvard. 67 stayed there. So it was certainly against the general tendency. So what were, what were the influences? What made you both simultaneously take this decision? No, no. There were basically that uh, both Sulachana also she enjoyed being in India. I very much enjoyed being in India. And she was agreeable very much to coming back to India. I'm sure the thought must have crossed your mind that the research rigor in Indian institutions would perhaps be much less than a, a reputed institution that you were coming from. And also that funding is not very easy to come by for research in India. Did that not influence your decision in any way? No, no. I was interested and I had every intention to do field ecology, which would not need much money. And as I said, with Rati Karve's example, I knew you don't need much money for such work. So the funding was part of that. And as far as the rigor and so on was concerned, I wanted to inject it into Indian scientific community if at all possible. And unfortunately, anywhere I might have managed, but Indian Institute of Science was an institution where this was readily possible. It was led by Satish Dhawan, a great technocrat. So it was readily possible there. So before your stint at the Indian Institute of Science, you joined the Agarkar Research Institute in Pune where you got to work with your former professor, Professor V.D. Varta. You undertook research on sacred groves or devarais as they are called in Maharashtra and were startled with the fact that sacred groves are not even acknowledged by the forest department back then. What were your experiences during this phase in your career at Agarkar Research Institute? Uh, I mean, this was the first uh, research I undertook uh, in India. Now, the hypothesis which was being promulgated was that the sacred groves were protected solely because of religious feelings and that as the religious feelings declined, they would be destroyed. But I thought that very likely the local community might be protecting them because of some ecosystem services such as protection to water sources. And therefore, while collecting the data, I deliberately collected data which would answer this kind of a question. And then also I saw that uh, the kind of uh, prevalent uh, feeling which Vartak also shared that it is the ignorant self uh, short-sighted villagers which are destroying these sacred grounds. And there was abundant evidence uh, of how Corruption of forest department, irrigation department was actually driving the destruction. So it was a, a very good, uh, I mean, learning of the social forces and political economic forces in operation. In the year 1973, 
both you and your wife, Professor Sulochana, got an opportunity to work at the Indian Institute of Science under the visionary uh, leadership of Professor Satish Dhawan. Here you were involved in setting up the Center for Theoretical Studies and the Center for Ecological Sciences, which later became a very eminent center of um, scientific research. How did you build the CES, as it is called, into India's leading center for scientific research? We have. Well, I, I guess I, I took full advantage of uh, matrix of Indian Institute of Science that it permitted interdisciplinarity. So, on the faculty also, as well as among the students, we could have uh, people from all disciplines. So, I had a student, uh, Sheshagiri, who was uh, from a farming family, uh, but had a degree in MSc with uh, uh, agriculture. And uh, Prabhakar, who had a IIT M.Tech in computational biology, but uh, he was fascinated by maps and he became my student and he did a very nice thesis on maps as markers of ecological history of Nilgiris. And uh, so, you know, whole kind of interdisciplinarity was possible. Then the, I could inject into this work uh, serious uh, quantitative studies and proper use of, uh, you know, statistical and other tools. Uh, again, it was the uh, Indian Institute of Science which made it possible. And as new disciplines uh, took root, such as use of remote sensing in ecology, very quickly in Indian Institute of Science it was possible. Because I could, uh, there was uh, in electrical engineering department a remote sensing group, but as soon as it started functioning, I made friends with the uh, faculty there, and maybe this is unusual. I went and attended courses they were teaching on remote sensing. I mean, I was uh, maybe at a higher level as a, uh, on the faculty than them, but I sat as a student in those courses and learned. And then I, later I taught myself. So all this was possible in the Indian Institute of Science. In other universities, I don't think it will be possible. Professor Gadgil has studied many areas of ecology, including work on forests. From 1986 to 1990, he was appointed as a member of the Prime Minister's Scientific Advisory Council, and it was then that he was instrumental in the establishment of India's first biosphere reserve in the Nilgiris in Tamil Nadu. But perhaps I feel you're one of the most significant contributions at the Centre for Ecological Sciences was probably the establishment of the first biosphere reserve in the country, which is the Nilgiri Biosphere Reserve. Could you tell us the story behind this achievement and how did you excite the government to get onto the idea of protecting biosphere reserves across? See, I started out uh, with the prejudices, actually, as I said, in the urban society, that protection of nature requires exclusion of local people, which was the philosophy that Salibari also very strongly advocated and he was my guru and my idol and I started off with this but then as uh, with the time went on and I understood what was going on on the ground then I came to realize that no this is not the way we must work with the people to protect nature and there was uh, a program of the uh, UNESCO called Biosphere Reserve 
which talked about this approach protecting nature as a part of joint endeavor of the communities and the uh, governmental apparatus so i was attracted to this idea now luckily at that time the person who was calling for proposals to be submitted by uh, indian uh, government to unesco for biosphere reserves was bp pal benjamin pierry pal was an indian agronomist who was the director of the indian agricultural institute and the first director of the indian council of agricultural research now bp pal was a remarkable man i must tell you was stories of uh, what he was uh, his name was benjamin pierry pal and uh, he was in fact uh, uh, the first director general of indian council of agricultural research and uh, very fine agricultural scientist anyway uh, he was also a great uh, artist in his house uh, he had these paintings of uh, incidents in draupadi's life in mahabharata and he was a wonderful uh, in the aesthetic sense and he had roses and bougainvilliers apart from wheat varieties which he bred roses and bougainvilliers anyway so this man was in charge of this program and we became good friends and he encouraged me and so i got to submit the nilgiri biosphere reserve proposal there were hurdles because it involved three states coming together and uh, bureaucracy working with people which is anathema to them so it took some time but yes it it, it, it did in that become country's first biosphere right and after that the government went on to um, conserve several other biosphere reserves in one place you mention about ecological prudence which i think is very important for our audience to understand which uh, ecological prudence which is demonstrated by especially tribal communities and hunting gathering communities and also the fisher folk of north karnataka with whom you worked in your research but uh, with the fisher folk of north karnataka you mentioned the use of a precautionary principle that led to sustainable fish populations can you expound on this and tell us what has led to the decline in ecological prudence today <laughs> no uh okay okay see uh, ecological prudence uh, is taking long term consequences in view and using ecological resources and uh, communities which had control over their resource base they tended to throughout history you have many examples of ecological prudence uh, not just in india but other parts of the world of communities which control their ecological resources of uh, practicing ecological prudence the fisher uh, when uh, actually it is not so much north karnataka i was working in mumbai and uh, in mumbai that time the japanese had uh, introduced trawling for the first time so there was this trawler which the japanese were using to train the fishermen to use trawlers I, I was interested, so I went on some trips on this trawler, and uh, I had become, I, as is my wont, I had immediately contacted the uh, secretary of the Mumbai, the Maharashtra, actually, Fishermen's Cooperative Union, and I got to know the fisher folk also, and they were told me that uh, look, trawling would bring in more fish catch to begin with, but it will certainly 
in the long run deplete because this trawler, the way it uh, drags on the sea bottom, will uh, harm fish breeding. And in the long run, this will uh, destroy. So this is called precautionary principle these days. So they were advocating that. Uh, and later it has actually come to uh, uh, the fact that this is very well now understood that it is this intensive stalling that world's uh, fish stocks have been very seriously depleted. Looking at your work at the Center for Ecological Studies at uh, Indian Institute of Science in 1980, Indira Gandhi invited you to be on the committee to plan for the Department of Environment. And I don't think many people will know this fact that you have your contribution towards the formation of what is today called as the Ministry of Environment, Forest and Climate Change, MOEFCC, started with Indira Gandhi's invitation to you. And I think BP Pal was also in that. Uh, Zafar Fateh Ali and MS Swaminathan. You know, all so Sundarlal Bahugana, all of these illustrious people who have done so many things were on this committee. But very interesting is the point that after the formation of this committee, along with Professor Kailash Malhotra, another very renowned uh, sociologist and anthropologist in India, he and you traveled for a couple of months across India, visiting people who were affected by economic development, getting to know their side of the story before you actually sat, put pen to paper to write a plan for that. So can you tell us something about this, these couple of months that you spent traveling in India? See, uh, at the first meeting of the committee, which was chaired by M.S. Swaminathan, I said that uh, we should actually have inputs from people at the grassroots in terms of what the environmental issues are mm -hmm. and uh, how they should be viewed. So they readily agreed, Ms. Swaminathan uh, and others also. They were, uh, B.P. Paul was there. They were very much in sympathy with this. And uh, then I invited K.C. Malhotra, who was a student of ecology, eco, Iravati Karve, actually, uh, who had great praise for him. And we had become friends and we were working together, Kailash and I. We went around, we uh, chose various regimes. So, Goa to understand the mining issues, to understand ocean pollution that was affecting fishing, other uh, trawling and uh, fisheries depletion, then uh, uh, Rajasthan, where. KJD. Uh, yeah, so we looked at the Bishnoi community, but also at uh, various other influences uh, right at the edge of the desert uh, mm. uh, in Jaisalmer and so on with uh, Sundarlal Bahuguda in Garhwal uh, and uh, uh, there was uh, this very interesting movement about the uh, impacts of Tawa Dam irrigation uh, projects in uh, near Hushangabad. So there and then in Ahmedabad and Pune districts. Ahmednagar also. Uh, sorry, Ahmednabad I said by mistake, Ahmednagar and Pune districts. But uh, that was fun. So, I mean, and, uh, Kailash and I, you know, we were always willing to go around uh, if necessary uh, on bikes, uh, bicycles, I mean, not motorbikes. And in several places we saw the people were scandalized that these supposedly senior uh, academics were quite willing to get onto their bikes and go. And we did. Yeah, one thing I forgot to mention to our audience is, as a youth, you were also very athletic. You 
you participated in events for represented pune university so i am sure the motorcycle riding love for that must be coming somewhere with from your sports uh... field work i mean i was able to undertake it effectively because i was a good athlete as i said maybe actually i held a at one time the maharashtra state uh, under 14 and under 16 high jump records and pune university high jump record i was pretty good athlete so i was able to uh, some of the colleagues uh, they when i was writing this autobiography one of them was devi prasad from uh, sulia in uh, dakshin kannada and he said uh, he remembers that he uh, it was part of our decentralized monitoring kind of network he and his students came to uh, tamini ghat you know here this hills here nearby and uh, uh, we were walking and uh, uh, he said you rapidly climbed up and calmly uh, were waiting for us to follow mm-hmm. and all the, we were much younger than you were i was 40 or so much younger than you were but we came up panting several minutes afterwards so yes uh, I, i was therefore able to you know do all these things uh, because of uh, my uh, love for sports uh, and uh, exercise and not just that i remember on one of our field visits with you uh, you were very keen to eat local misals and vada pavs on the way so uh, love for trekking and you know your <laughs> enjoyment of local cuisine is something which is very much um, specific professor gadgil's work in policy has continued throughout his career and he has been a member of many task forces committees and councils in 2010 he was asked by the indian government to chair an expert panel to assess the status of the ecology of the western ghats and to identify ecologically sensitive zones as per the environment protection act and through a consultative process to recommend pathways for the conservation of this important region the western ghats ecology expert panel that became known as the gadgil committee submitted its recommendations commonly known as the gadgil report in 2011 but they were rejected by the concerned states as this issue became highly politicized so coming to the one of the most important parts of this conversation as the head of the western ghats ecology expert panel you and your team spent a significant time on field work and meeting local people officials government officials but what is also not known is that you employed novel ways of gathering data so for example you held essay competitions for school children in the western ghats to understand what what is their idea of their neighborhood and their landscape you also studied human interventions and their impacts in great detail and poured over scientific studies in the sahyadri mountains the report was hotly debated in indian politics as well as media can you take us through this journey a little bit for our audiences ha i mean when uh, of course i had been doing studies on the western ghats uh, well before i was asked to chair this committee uh, in 2010 as i said from 2000, uh, 1973 you know, actually uh, oh 71 when i returned from harvard from agarkar yes. i had been engaged i had been engaged in the studies on the western ghats so there was this background 
but uh, uh, for the panel then i thought that we must uh, very systematically collect uh, data at the ground level talk to people collect data at the ground level also use uh, remote sensing imagery and so on very carefully and i as i said in the indian institute of science i learned that i had uh, students who were good at that so they helped so with that and actual dialogue with people at the ground level uh, a very kind of uh, rich database could be put together and uh, this as i said uh, we wrote uh, frankly uh, fortunately the way jairam ramesh was the minister and he was uh, perfectly happy with uh, honest frank writing of the report so i could uh, put in the report many things which were unpalatable to the powers that be for example in mahableshwar which was much earlier declared an ecologically sensitive area under another uh, piece of legislation uh, the local people told me that uh, this is used only to harass us that if we have to dig a well we are told that no no this is ecologically sensitive area you cannot dig a well well but the ecological sensitivity vanishes when you give them 20000 rupee bribe <laughs> i said look i cannot write in the report such things just because you tell me will you give me a, in writing they said why not and actually some panchayat members of mableshwar panchayat and uh, other citizens wrote to me uh, wrote a letter and signed uh, with their names and addresses uh, giving this fact so i put it in my the report i had a very concrete uh, evidence here is an excerpt from a news bulletin following the floods in kerala in 2018 from the news channel ndtv prophet an 11 report by ecologist Madhav Gadgil is back in the news after the devastating floods in Kerala. The over 500 page report submitted by the Gadgil committee recommended a slew of measures to preserve the ecology of the western ghats including districts in Kerala some of which have been the worst hit in this deluge. This report was never implemented and there is now a narrative that the devastation of Kerala could have been less if some of these measures had been taken to speak more on this i'm joined now by madhav gadgil those such things of course the, the ruler ruling classes cannot stomach those i think was this uh, whole lot of uh, uh, controversy but uh, i said i must stand my ground uh, so uh, i never uh, stopped the talking about it and since i enjoyed writing popular writing also i was very much sought after actually as a writer in media and so i have kept writing about this uh, both in english uh, and in marathi and occasionally even in hindi so i kept a kind of a stream of putting forth my position despite all the campaign which was mounted against our report which has helped because by now you know the other day in maharashtra legislation when there was this horrific landslide landslide yes uh ishalwadi the legislative assembly i think leader of the opposition ashna government 
what are you doing about Madhav Gadge report? Although it should not be called Madhav Gadge report. After all, we were a panel. Anyway, but uh, that is how it has come to be called. And uh, so there was some debate. So they are talking about it uh, 10 years uh, after it was disclosed uh, and uh, 12 years after it was written. And everywhere there is uh, been uh, a awareness uh, developed. And I'm happy about that. Yeah, I think it's very important even today to bring up that report and get into discussion. From uh, your first book, which gained international recognition, This Fissured Land, which is a book I, I read very long ago. And uh, in all my classes, I put that as a recommended text reading, although it's not at all an academic text. So from This Fissured Land, which you wrote with Ramchandra Guha, till A Walk Up the Hill, which is your recent autobiography. You've been a very prolific writer, and not just in English, but in Marathi, where you've been writing columns in local newspapers, as well as magazines, and uh, across international magazines. I think very few scientists or academicians connect with civil society at large through a mouthpiece which is based on popular science or a very easy reading of science. And I think that has helped gain strong following towards Madhav Gadgil as an ecologist more than anything. Can you tell us a little bit about uh, your experiences as an author? Huh. See, J.B.S. Holday that I mentioned uh, in, to, at the beginning, he was uh, although I never got to meet him personally, nevertheless, he was my idol in many ways, both in terms of uh, uh, serious science as well as in terms of this popular writing. So, I always thought that this is very important and I, I enjoyed writing. Uh, so, I started writing uh, uh, earlier in Sushtidyat, but that was then there was a hiatus. But, as soon as I started working on sacred groves, actually, uh, interestingly, uh, Salim Ali's cousin, Zafar Pateli, he became interested. So he asked me to write about sacred groves, an article which uh, then was published in the Illustrated Weekly of India. So in 1971, this was the first uh, popular article in English. Kushwan Singh was Kushwan the Singh, editor. Uh, was the editor. Uh, I got to meet him also. He's an interesting character. Anyway. Uh, so, from 71 onwards, I was writing occasionally in Marathi because then uh, largely I was in Bangalore and I wrote a lot in Deccan Herald and uh, local other Hindu, the Hindu and so on. Uh, and occasionally in Marathi, but in 2007 when I came back to Pune, I started writing uh, much more regularly in Marathi, in Sakal and Lokasatta and so on. And uh, very interestingly, uh, the response add to the English uh, articles and Marathi articles is different. Yeah. I find uh, actually uh, this book, which is now being launched on September 1, one of the boys who is going to come and who became a good friend of mine is from a shepherd community, uh, Saurabh Hatkar. And his... Uh, Family actually, they still go migrating with their sheep. But uh, they decided to educate one of their 
family. So they sent him uh, to college and he got a degree in computer science from uh, uh, Chandrapur and then uh, from Tata Institute of Social Service, a degree in social service, whatever it is. And now he has been admitted for PhD in Edinburgh University, very bright boy. But anyway, it was reading my Marathi articles that he came to specially meet me. These things and then the uh, reading my Marathi articles, all sorts of people, uh, some remote uh, village uh, carpentry community people, Sutars, they have written to me. So these uh, um, Indian language material reaches out to people in a different way and much wide, much more widely than the English language. So that's why I was uh, very happy when the possibility obviously came up that my autobiography will be translated in various Indian languages. So looking back at your journey as a change maker, do you see yourself that you had to make some sacrifices in your life, in your personal life? No, people talk about it, but I, have, I say that no, I have made no sacrifices. Uh, for instance, giving up an assistant professorship offers from Harvard and Princeton and so on, uh, and coming back, uh, and then later also I had a full professorship office at Stanford. I refused. I was not interested. So uh, those to many people are sacrifices. To me, are not. I have enjoyed myself in India. Maybe partly because I had the good fortune to work at Indian Institute of Science with its vibrant atmosphere, but otherwise also. Uh, and then I have had a physical hardship as part of the field work, uh, including having had to be chased by elephants and spent uh, one night all alone in a tree. But uh, I enjoyed all those things. There is no, no. So I have never made any uh, sacrifices or I have enjoyed everything and uh, I have uh, had a very good life. I think our audience will enjoy listening to the story that you spent on okay. my uh, see, Mukurti in the Nilagiris is, a, is an area where it is on the edge of the western ghats of I mean, the Nilagiris there. And uh, there is a sheer cliff down to the Kerala plain. Mm. That was an area I was very interested in. And it is very rugged terrain. And I, I went there with a local guide and Narendra Prasad who was my PhD student and who continued, you know, we were working together uh, for field work. Now, there was a, and earlier, uh, the British planters used to hunt in the, those areas. Mm -hmm. So they had these game hunts, the uh, game uh, huts. The game huts were in the forest uh, covered and you could not see them from outside. And there they used to go riding on horses and primarily hunt uh, Nilgiri Tar, which mm. was, uh, you know, a favorite uh, game for them. Now we went to this area with Prasad uh, and that local field guide uh, uh, and uh, I. We walked a long distance one day uh, to a game hut. And uh, which is a place called Ankit Malai, and then they were tired, and they said, 
enough is enough. But I said enough is not enough because if I climb a little more, I will go to the top of the cliff there and near Ankit Balai, and I will have this magnificent view of the uh, sheer drop of some 2,000 meters, I guess, to Kerala Plains. Escarpment, and, was it? Yeah, this whole escarpment, the western escarpment of the western guards. So I will uh, go up there and uh, you can go to the hut and uh, I will come back. So I was there at the top and it was a magnificent scenery except just as I reached the top and was admiring the scenery, the clouds started coming up hmm. from below and pretty soon it became completely cloudy. So then I quickly climbed down. But now there was no question, how will I see that hut? It was some distance away, it wasn't right there, and I would never reach there. And very rarely do elephant herds stray into that area. Mm -hmm. They are generally at lower altitudes. But that day, elephants had strayed into that area. And I could hear their trumpeting and they were breaking branches and so on. So, here I was. It was getting very dark. No chance of getting back to the hut. And there are these wild elephants around. And wild elephants, uh, if you uh, run into them by accident also, just with a swish of their trunk, will you will be gone. Sweep yourself. <laughs> your head will be somewhere else from and your body. Anyway, I mean, you will get killed. A lot of people every year uh, get killed by elephants when they blunder into them. So, what can I do? So, now there is only one way to now uh, escape them, is to find a tree which is tall enough out of reach of the elephants, climb up the tree and spend the night there. Hmm. And then next morning, maybe when it is broad daylight, try to make your my way back, not to the hut, which I have no chance of finding, but to the uh, lodge of the Upper Bhavani Irrigation Project, uh, which was some 12 kilometers away, I knew. So, I decided that uh, that's the way to do it. So, there was this Bhavani River uh, stream. There was a sandy island there. On the middle of that island was a very nice tree. Faikas Chahal, I remember that, uh, one of the fig trees. So, I climbed up there about 20 feet and uh, Earlier it was dark, but then by 2 o'clock or so, the mood rose and the mist went away. It was a lovely night anyway. And I, I, I was very fond of tree climbing from my very young age. So, next morning, I got down and I, I before I went up, I had made sure that morning I won't be confused which direction the uh, project rest house would be. So, I had with... Uh, Pebbles made arrows. Oh. So I was walking that direction, not in any wrong way. Sure. Anyway, finally, I some three or three and a half hours it took to cover those, or maybe a little more, those uh, twelve kilometers. And I I reached the how uh, this rest house of the project, and Prasad and uh, my student and this local guide, they had already made their way there. Mm. And they had decided that only thing to do now was to send out a search party for Madhav Gadgi's dead body. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> when I finally arrived there, 
alive. I mean, it was, they were jubilation. And but losing a renowned scientist would have been death knell for his career, the person who <laughs> was supposed to be your guide. So therefore, he was so jubilant. One of the questions which I asked you is, uh, do you see any challenges towards conservation in India? On the whole, what is happening is that uh, nature is being destroyed and people are being deprived of their access to resources to enrich the pockets of a small number of people, which is a serious challenge. And uh, this has to be combated maybe, as I said, uh, with the knowledge and information reaching out to wider uh, group of people, this will be increasingly challenged. Coming to the last part of uh, this conversation, do you have any hope for conservation of our natural biodiversity or do you see any challenges which we need to surmount? There are, there are very good signs of hope uh, in the implementation of this Forest Rights Act. FRA. They have a community forest rights provision. And I have been very actively involved in working with communities. Uh, and this has not been allowed to be implemented by vested interests all over. But in Gadchiroli district, because of fortunate combination of a very honest uh, deputy commissioner of the district and uh, good local leadership, 1,100 village communities have been given these community forest resources. And I have been working with them. And once they have control over these resources, they have reasserted their ecological prudence, which had slowly been eroded because they had no control over their actions. So we should see in coming years this happening more and more. Situation will go on changing and we will progress towards a more equitable, more fair society. So I think these are. Very interesting possibilities and I'm quite optimistic. Today, there are several organizations as well as many youth who are turning into citizen scientists as well as, you know, formal education in science. And there are many organizations which allow you to work on that. Would you have any message for them? I'm sure they would be inspired. My message to them is really that, uh, please do not uh, have an elitist attitude. Uh, of, uh, as I said, even my guru Vartak had, that it is the ignorant and uh, improvident uh, uh, villagers who are destroying nature. They are not. I mean, it is the resource demands of the cities which are probably much more responsible for destroying nature than their rural demands. Simply, without any prejudice, go out and work with people and amongst them with an open mind and you will do far more valuable contributions uh, than otherwise if you have a, a prejudiced view of the different classes of the mm. societies. Do not have such a view. That is my message perhaps. So, Professor Gargil, thank you so much for spending such a lot of time with us and sitting up and explaining your journey. I'm sure our audiences would have gathered so many new things about that and at least a few would have had some influence on turning into field scientists like yourself. So thank you again so much. My pleasure, my pleasure. 
Grassroots Nation is a podcast from Rohini Nilekani Philanthropies. For more information, go to rohininilekanifilanthropies.org or join the conversation on social media at rnp_foundation. Stay tuned for our next episode. Thank you for listening to Grassroots Nation.